Now, during the course of his 18-year career, Peyton Manning made uh, the practice of sending handwritten letters, as you saw, to former teammates, opponents, coaches, and even fans. And in this clip, I don't know if you caught it early on, Peyton mentioned that when a player retires, we remember their career from the date it started and the date it ended, and there's this little dash between those two years. And what Manning was hoping to do was uh, draw attention to recognize, to give thanks for all the work that went in to the, that career. And you can see the impact it had on these men uh, as those letters were received, as they read them. Now, I think that impact was felt for a couple of reasons. First, it, it feels good to have your efforts validated, right? Everyone likes getting bragged on about the hard work that they do. No one ever said, man, my boss really gets on my nerves by always thanking me for all the hard work I do at our company. Uh, it gets on my nerves when my spouse tells me that I did a good job with the yard, or I did a good jo job cooking tonight. Like, no one thinks that. We enjoy hearing good news. We enjoy being bragged on. But also, I think it meant a lot, as you heard these players say, because of who sent the letter, right? Payne Manning, the greatest quarterback in the University of Tennessee history, uh, is an incredible quarterback. And his letter meant a lot to the people because of who he was. This wasn't just an average fan. This was one of the greatest players of all time. Now, why mention this? What does this have to do with God's word and preaching? Well, I mention it because we are beginning a journey through the book of Thessalonians. And in it, we're going to see a lot of similarities here at play. This morning, we're going to discuss some things. And specifically, what we're going to discuss is Paul commending a young church for their work. Now, think about it. A young church who just started, Paul visits, he leaves, and he writes them this letter about how happy and excited he was to be a part of them. It probably meant a lot to them. Paul wrote tons of letters. He sent out a lot of letters. Uh, this one is unique. This one is different. So we want to take some time to explore it in this theme more and more. Because as Matt mentioned last week, Rooftop is still a young church. Uh, the second date on our uh, career here in Afton has not been filled yet. We are investigating what the church in Thessalonians did because we want our little dash to be filled with more and more. We want to look at this young church and say, okay, what did they do and how can we emulate them in the times in which we live? Because as Paul's going to say, there's more and more God has for this church and for rooftop. We're praying that the dash at rooftop is filled with more souls saved, more lives changed, more songs sung, more homes to build, more churches to plant, and more people to love, more and more and more. So this morning, we want to dive right in. Matt gave us an incredible uh, set the stage last week about what this letter is, and now we're going to dive right into it by turning to the book of Thessalonians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now, before you panic, it's only 10 verses, okay? So we'll get through it. Um, but let's read it together. Well, not together. You listen to me read it. You follow along. <laughs> Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. 
We always thank God for all of you and your continue and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. We know how you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. To the, Lord, the Lord's message rang out from you, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves reported what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, what I find particularly fascinating about the beginning of this letter is how confident, is, how confident Paul is that the work of this church is a genuine work of God. In verse 4, he says this, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, he, that he has chosen you. That's a bold statement, right? We know, we know he has chosen you. And that ca caused me to think, okay, how did Paul know that? What are the markers? What happened in their lives that made Paul say, man, I know God's chosen you. I know this is the real deal. It's important to investigate this because maybe perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you're kind of peeking over the fence. You're trying to figure out this Christianity thing. And you've heard a lot about Christians and churches. But you really want to know, okay, what does it look like for God to really move amongst the people? What would it look like if there were a people that we knew God had chosen? So let's take a few moments to look at what gave Paul such confidence in this young church. Verse 5 gives us the answer. Verse 5 says this, Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Gospel power. There's something today that we desperately need as a church, as individuals, as a country, as a world. It is gospel power. That gospel power came to this church. They believed the message, right? The word came. They believed the declaration that Jesus was king, that God is ruling the world, that there's a new power here on earth, that there's a new kingdom that's come. They believed it. But catch it. They didn't just believe it. They didn't just accept the words they didn't just mentally sit down and say, all right, we believe this, 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 and this. There was power. The Holy Spirit was there working, deep conviction. There was power. They didn't just say, okay, we believe this, and then we're just going to go back and live how everyone else lived and be totally indistinguishable from those around us. They reconsidered every aspect of life in light of this new declaration. And because they did that, it, 
produced something. Let's look at how they lived differently. What they did that made them stand out in Paul's mind. Now he mentions a few things here. In verse 3, he says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 7 through 8, uh, he commends their imitation was so great that it rang out throughout the area. That other people were telling Paul about what they did before Paul had told them. Now, there's a lot to talk about there, right? I mean, there's like four sermons in there. We talk about faith, hope, and love. We can talk about being an imitator of the Lord. We can talk about having joy and suffering. We could talk about being a model for the world around us. But what I wanted to do this morning is talk about something else. I wanted to talk about, if I could boil it down into like, okay, what made all that possible, right? If, if this church kind of had some dates, they would have, right? The gospel came in power. And then because of that, all these incredible things happened. Faith, hope, love, imitation, all these amazing things. But I want to boil it down to maybe the dash. What happened in between those two things what did the gospel power free them up to do that caused them to live such amazing lives? Well, I think the answer is found at the end of the chapter, verses 9 through 10. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be that phrase, turned to God from idols. Receiving the gospel message created the power and the ability for these people to turn from their idols to worship God. So this morning, that's what we're going to ask. Where do I need gospel power to turn from idols in my life? Because when we start doing that, when people start doing that, that's a sign that God's at work. That's when people look at our church from outside the communities and say, there's something different going on there. That's when we can look at someone in our small group and say, gosh, God is doing something in their life. Because the things that we talk about as success and the world talks about as success are two different things. So let me, stay, let me set the stage for we talk about idols. When we talk about idols, let me set the stage for what it would have been like for this church. N.T. Wright sums up just kind of the landscape of the time the best. He says, the gods of Greece and Roman paganism were everywhere. If you wanted to plant a tree, you would pray to the relevant God. If you're going on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. If you or your son or daughter were getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. At every turn in the road, the gods were there. Unpredictable, possibly malevolent, sometimes at war amongst themselves, so that you could never do, you could never do them too much in the way of placating them making sure you got them on your side. He said, at every turn in the road, the gods were there. 
So these people living in this environment recognize this declaration, these things don't really have power anymore. There's a new king. God's in charge now. And it caused them to turn from these idols and turn to God. That's what the gospel message does. But what if I told you today that that quote, at every turn in the road, the gods were there. What if I told you that today we still live in a world, we still live in that world, that our world is still saturated with idols? I heard this story once about a pastor. He was in India doing kind of some missions work, and he was in this uh, Indian village. He's talking with a local pastor there who was a native, and uh, on this side of the road going into their village, they had the little shrines to all the idols. So the pastor was talking, uh, and he mentioned, hey, would you ever want to come to America and kind of help us do some work there, plant a church, or come speak? Like, would you ever want to come to America and do ministry? And the local Indian pastor looked at him. He said, I would never go to America. You guys have too many idols. So the pastor's sitting there like, you know, there's like dead animals here on the shrine. He's kind of like, what, you know, what do you mean by that? And the pastor looked at him. He said, well, you worship your stomach, and there's a restaurant on every corner. He's like, you worship material things and there's a billboard or a commercial every time I turn around and look. At every step of the road, the gods were there. We're not running around offering our gifts to Zeus or Aphrodite or Bacchus. We're not doing any of that, but we're still drawn to worship things. We're still drawn to give things our time, our talent, and our treasure. So what is an idol? If it's not a statue, if it's, is it a restaurant on the corner? What is it? Richard Keyes wrote a book called In None But God, and he writes this. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. All sorts of things are potential idols. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. All inflated, suggesting that the idol will fulfill the promises, here's the problem, for the good life. For the good life. It is a semi-conscious belief that material success will wipe away every tear. That's what idols are. Now, let me give you maybe something a little bit more concrete to help us really understand. In our world today, and even back then, idols kind of usually fall into four categories. Comfort, approval, control, and power, right? Think about this. Back in that day when they would go and they would worship at the temple of Zeus, they weren't like, oh, Zeus, we worship you because of how great you are. It was, we worship you, can you give us some power, <laughs> Zeus, we worship you. Can you give us some comfort? Athena, we worship you so you'll give us some approval. We do the same things today, not with statues, but with other things. I have a chart here. So this morning, let's look at these four things. Let's look at these four things and let's see if we can find out what are our idols. What do we find ourselves gravitating towards. 
Let's take a look at the first one. Control. People with a control idol think that, you know, their life will only have meaning or I'll only have worth if I can have a a certain quality of life. If I can be in charge. People like this often have an overemphasis on things like self-discipline and certainty. The price, you know, we offer up to the God, to the idol of control is loneliness, right? It's hard to make relationships with people if you want to control them. (laughs) If you're trying to control and manipulate everything around you, you push people away. People oftentimes might feel condemned. You can't do things as good as me. You can't run this as good as me. You can't balance the budget as good as me. You can't mow the yard as good as me. You you try to control everyone, just constantly pushes people away. They feel condemned. Now, the the problem emotion, the the thing that kind of bubbles out is worry. Leaves us feeling worried all the time. Next, let's talk about the idol of comfort. The the comfort idol tells me that life only has meaning or I only have worth if I can have this kind of a certain pleasurable experience. It causes me to think in my mind, if I just had like more privacy, if I had less people telling me what to do, if I had less stress in my life, if I just had total freedom, then life would be good. The price... I'm willing to pay for comfort. It's just kind of reduced productivity, right? I'll do less because I want to avoid the burden of kind of like doing more. My biggest nightmare is stress or demands other people might put on me. The only problem with that is that it leaves people feeling hurt. People love me. People want to depend on me. I have people that depend on me. And if I'm like, I got to be comfortable. I can't, I can't go there with you. I can't take on that responsibility. I can't do this or that. It leaves people feeling hurt. Approval. People with an approval idol believe that life only has meaning or they'll say, I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by blank. You can fill in the blank. It could be a, a relationship, a significant other, a friend. It's an over-dependence on affirmation, relationship. Like this is everything. If I don't have, if I can't get this, then I won't be happy. People like this are willing to sacrifice independence because they want to be accepted by someone else. And the ugly side of this is even sometimes it gets to the point where even if that person is hurting them, they want to be accepted. So they'll take abuse and pain because they just, they want to be accepted so bad. Their greatest fear is being rejected by someone else. They can't handle being rejected. The problem is that when you live life this way, other people often feel smothered, but they can't fill the hole in your heart. They can't do enough. That idol turns us into cowards. We're afraid. We don't want to have the conversation. We're scared. We want to always, are you okay? Did I do okay? Are you? We just kind of feel that. The final one on our chart this morning is power. 
Those who have a power idol believe life only has meaning. I'm only important if I can influence those around me. You might struggle with an over-dependence on winning, feeling that you got to be successful. The price you're willing to pay is you'll just take on more burdens, more responsibility to the level where you can't really manage all of it. You'll just take more and more and more upon yourself. Your greatest fear, you can't imagine being humiliated by others, in front of others. If your kids act up, right? If your kids do something instead of thinking, oh man, that's really bad, that that might could hurt them. I see this character, maybe I could work it out. Your first thought is, well, you don't think it, but your initial reaction is, you're going to make me look like an idiot and I'm going to get angry to keep you from making me look like an idiot. Most often people around you feel used because you're just a cog in their game. And the, the emotion that kind of comes out most often is anger. So my question to you this morning is, which one of those do you find yourself gravitating towards? Now, I will uh, lead the way. Notice when I talked about all those uh, when I talked about comfort, I said I. I kind of used the first person singular there, right? Because comfort is the one that I struggle with the most. Comfort is the one that calls out to me most often. It's the one that tells me when I go home and I walk in the door and my daughters are there and they want to play with dad, comfort tells me, dude, you've worked so hard, you just need to lay on the couch. Comfort tells me that I wish my wife would stop asking me to do stuff. I wish my wife would just leave me alone and let me veg out here. I deserve this. I worked so hard today. I deserve this. I deserve to be left alone. It subconsciously causes me to think if they would just quit putting burdens on me, if they would just let me have my quiet, leave me alone, my life would be good. It's a battle for me to not believe those lies, to fight them. Because comfort, when I worship it, may alleviate me, right? I may be tired and I may get a little alleviation or I may be stressed out about, okay, school and bills and this. And okay, well, I can get on my phone for a little bit and forget it. It might alleviate some of me, but it's not going to heal me. There's no healing in comfort. And what it's done to me and in the past is it has made my wife feel hurt. Made my wife feel let down when I didn't follow through or I wasn't out doing what I was supposed to be doing. Because I just want to rest and have comfort and lay in bed and watch TV and not get out into the yard and pull weeds. Like, oh, please no. Now, she's been incredibly gracious to me in our entire marriage. And because of her grace towards me. I've been able to wake up little by little and see what this is doing to me. But the call is kind of always there, right? It's always a temptation for me to fall into that. Now, where I found victory over these things takes me back to the text, right? You see, the gospel came with word and power. And there was a correlation there. God chose them. God sent the gospel. God poured out his spirit. But there was a dynamic that people had to 
respond. I have to respond. I know God set me free. I know his gospel has set me free. I know that those idols don't have control over me every day, but they still call out to me. And I still, now I have a choice. I'm free to say no and say yes to God. How can I do that? Well, I can look at the, the church here. The church down in verses 9 through 10, give us a little format. There's three verbs here. Turn, serve, and wait. Turn, serve, and wait. So let's look at all those. Let's look at how we might find freedom from our idols. Now, let's look at the first one, to turn. Now, in order to turn from something, you got to know what you're turning from. Because rarely do we wake up in the morning and say, well, time to go worship the power idol again, or oh, I'm feeling stressed out. Let me go out to the comfort shrine I got down in the basement and pour out my offering there. No, these idols call to us and they slowly kind of pull us in over a lifetime of pain, of experience, of deception. That's what happens. We live lives and we start to fill the the pain and the gaps and the hurt in our lives with these idols, thinking that they'll save us. When you hear this message this morning, I'm not here to condemn you as some kind of wicked idol worshiper. I want you to find freedom. Because most of us drift to these idols because of pain. We want to make sure no one hurts us again, so we want to have power over everyone. We want to make sure everyone does exactly what we say because I don't want to be hurt or I don't want to be embarrassed. We want to avoid pain, so I just want to be comfortable and veg out on the couch and not look at stuff that I need to get done. I don't want to, it seems overwhelming and hard. I want to, a lifetime of that draws us to these idols. So we have to know what they are. We can ask ourselves a few questions, and some of them are going to pop up here on our screen. I'll just read a few of them to you. But what would really in your life make you happy? What makes you acceptable to those around you? Where do you look for things like power and success? Now, if you if you can answer these questions, it kind of helps you get an understanding of what you worship. But there's, I think another way to do it, it's a little more straightforward. Look at your money. Now, of course, money can be an idol, right? But oftentimes what we do with our money is we feed the idol. We purchase what we want, right? For some people who want a lot of money, they want a lot of money because they want to control the world around them in their life. So those people usually don't spend a lot of money. They just want to save it. There's nothing to hear me. Okay, I'm not saying you shouldn't save your money. In contrast, others want lots of money to access social circles or make themselves feel beautiful and attractive. Those people spend a lot of money on themselves. Uh, once again, I'll start with me. For me, my, my natural state out of years, my gut reaction is that money's to make me comfortable. That's my gut instinct. That's why I have to stay focused on Jesus and the Bible and prayer and community and sacraments and all these things so I can keep focused on God because I know how easy it is for me to fall into the trap. 
I want my life to be comfortable. I don't want to cook dinner tonight, so I'm just going to go buy food. I'm just going to go eat out. Now, I'm not saying eating out is worshiping an idol. Don't leave this place saying I said that. But if it just becomes an overarching thing of my life, my money's here to make my life easier, I'm trapped. So turning from your idols could be a prayer. It could be a start. But turning is a verb. It's an action. It's not just a change of mind. But it could start with a simple prayer. Lord, I've built my life around, for me, it's comfort. I've sacrificed so much of what you have for me and hurt those around me in my willing and unwilling service to comfort. I want to stop doing this. Please forgive me. Please strengthen me to do it. But you have to turn. But you have to turn and you got to serve something. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve. Everyone's got to serve someone. You want to shift your over-dependence on these things to God. You want to pray, Lord, this is a good thing, right? Lord, power, that's a good thing. Approval, good thing. Control, it's a good thing to be in control. Comfort, these are good things. But why have I made them absolute things? Why do I feel so pointless without it? What is it compared to you? If I have you, I don't have to have this. This cannot bless me and love me. And help me like you do. This is not my life. Comfort is not my life. Jesus, you're my life. Comfort is not my righteousness and worthiness. It can't give me that. But you can and have. So I take my service to comfort, power, control, approval. And I give all the time and energy and effort. I give it now to God. So for me, it's as simple as before I open the door and go into work, say a quick little prayer and say, okay, what's really going to heal me and bless me and bless my family is not for me to just go lay on the couch for an hour and look at Twitter. It's go swing my kids in the backyard. It's talk to my wife about how her day was. Lord, you're going to give me rest and comfort in as I love and care for them. Jesus, help me use my money in a way that won't just make my life comfortable, but will lift other people up. I can't pray that prayer for you, but I wonder what that prayer would look like in your life. Now, the final verb seems like a strange one here. Uh, wait. The passage says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Now, what's in the word wait in the Bible does not mean Eh, we just kind of hang out and do our thing. Waiting in the Bible means depending on the Lord. And throughout his letter, Paul's going to encourage this church to do a lot of stuff, to get out, to get into the game, to partner with him in the renewal of all things. So waiting is not just sitting around in the sanctuary, hoping God would come and take us away to give us the ultimate power, comfort, control, and approval. We depend on him and we wait. And we know that, Lord, you're working in me. You're going to do this work. It might not happen overnight, but I'm going to depend and trust in you. But that's hard for us because we want it now. 
we want it all right now. We want to pray one time. We want to come to church once a month. We want to read our Bible whenever we think about it. And, and just God's going to do it through that. We got to depend on him. And we got to trust in God's timing and recognize our own brokenness and pains and hurts. Because when the gospel comes, it comes in power. We have all that we need this morning. We have all that we need in the declaration of Jesus is King to be an incredible church who loves people, who are finding healing from the idols of our day, who would say, Jeremy, you'll find comfort if you have the right this. Jeremy, you'll have comfort if you have enough power and no one can hurt you. Jeremy, you'll have enough respect if you can just control all the stuff in your life. Jeremy, you'll have all the approval you want if you just get 150,000 followers on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. When we reject those lies and we say, you know what, Lord, all these things are found in you, we will be set free.